Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, where together, you and I, we get to dive down this amazing rabbit hole and have fun with so many great guests, Bitcoin, crypto, everything in between AI, hackers, friend tech, films, Hollywood. By the way, I just released another film. You guys have been seeing it all over my social media, probably. It's called Trauma Therapy Psychosis. It's on Apple TV and everywhere else. It's starring my wife, Courtney, who's an amazing actor, and Hannah New, and Tom, the late Tom Sizemore, and some other amazing actors. And there've been a lot going on in the crypto space lately, especially in Bitcoin. Bitcoin Improvement Protocol 300 has been getting a lot of attention lately. We had Paul Stork, the creator of the Bitcoin Improvement Protocol 300 back in 2014, but we had him on the show recently. He's the creator of Layer 2 Labs and, and Drive Chains. I'm very optimistic on the ability to like upgrade Bitcoin in a soft fork way without having to force anyone who's not done the upgrade to force them into it. Reverse you know, compatibility is very important for Bitcoin. In such a great change like this, where you can have multiple layers of security, multiple layers of opportunity, smart contracts without breaking the Bitcoin main chain is pretty cool. We're going to have people on the show that show us different sides of it too. I've been playing a lot around with FriendTech lately. I know it's on um, it's on Ethereum, but it's actually on the, the base chain, Coinbase. What's interesting about the base chain is that Binance taught us through BNB when they first launched it. Now, Binance Smart Chain is now called, I think, just Smart Chain or something. But at first, it showed us that blockchains can be maybe launched in a way where you have stewards like businesses or people that kind of help guide it to decentralization and eventually let it go. So what's interesting is we'll see how Base does. They're kind of trying to be like the app store for blockchains where anyone can develop and be on it, but there's a certain set of standards. So you prevent like hacks from happening in the future. It's like the early days of the internet versus how we have the internet now. When we download apps on our computer or on our phones, we don't have to really worry about virus scanning and things like that. Speaking of which, we do. So I'm so wrong about that because my guests, I'm one of the guests on the show today, we have two amazing guests today. Ross Plumer from Yokai, who comes from the hacker world. He's comes from the, the ability to, we were just talking how there's a new Apple upgrade where they had the ability to, to break into our phones and come in there through like a text message. And there was an upgrade that came out the last second. And we were just talking about that. Uh, you guys will hear about it in a second. So it's really exciting. The Yokai, the company has been developing and pivoting secretly for the last year. And they're just launching now. He's the CEO. And what they're doing is like providing a cross-platform decentralized method for hackers to get paid for in real time testing to see if like applications or websites can be broken or hacked into. So they're doing it for good, but real people are doing it in real time across all different platforms. So you have like GitHub and Microsoft and all these places where the hackers unite. And so he incentivized everyone and it's really cool. It's like a swarm. And yokai actually means like fluidity, like the flow and ghosts. So we talked about that too. And then we had Anjali Young. She's super cool because she runs this company called Collabland. And the company is widely recognized as the creator of token gating a couple of years ago. So many communities are run using Collabland, like Adidas, McLaren, World of Women, Pudgy Penguins, Doodles, Bankless DAO. Admins can create communities across like 24 different layer ones and layer twos using like fungible tokens and NFTs. So between Ross and Anjali, you got two people managing like millions of people between hackers and collaborators and NFT owners and crypto people. 
So on one side, you have like people complaining that, oh, Bitcoin and crypto is like lowest of the low, the price needs catalysts and stuff like that. Crypto trading is at a four-year low, search interest is at a four-year low. But I think anyone who's smart sees those as contrarian indicators to what's really happening in the crypto space, especially in Bitcoin. So my friends, buckle up. I'll see you in an hour from now as we wrap up the show. A lot of times we get guests who are new to me. I don't know them yet. And you guys experience us becoming friends over the show. And then we have people that I've known for a while, folks that I've been in the trenches with. I'm really excited to introduce Ross Plumert on the show today, the CEO of Yokai. Ross, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, Charlie. Thanks for having me here. Really excited to be here. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm excited because you've been in the trenches for the past year or so with Yokai, building out, pivoting from, from one company, started as WeFuzz turning into Yokai. And there's a few different lessons here. We're going to talk about today, like the Web3 security infrastructure, how Yokai is solving that, how you're bringing together hackers and people that need to test if their uh, product or service or technology or smart contract needs pen testing or, or different vulnerability testing. Also want to talk about how you guys went from a company that hadn't even launched yet and you had to pivot, you know, as you're building your company. Most companies today that we never see actually launch fail at that stage where they launch a product or an idea and halfway through building it, before they launch, they realize that they have to change and they're afraid to do so and they fail. Let's kind of dive deep into that a little bit, Ross. Like at what point did you realize that there's this now like big moment for the company and you have to steer this ship into where Yokai is today? Yeah, thanks. I actually like that introduction because I was just sitting there thinking, suddenly feeling really proud of myself for pivoting, and I hadn't really, um, I hadn't really considered that. Yeah, of, of course, a, a lot of people get to that stage, and it wasn't by dumb luck. So we started WeFuzz. We started as a DAO. We're like, we're going to be the first hacker DAO. This is and this is great, and we're gonna, you know, we're really gonna make inroads into Web three security. We're going to have a, a practice and an approach that everyone in Web3 is going to get and, and everyone's going to like it. And, you know, it will be completely tokenized, completely autonomous, first through the door and everything like that. Chai, our CTO, you know, he's a genius. Brilliant. He's, he's building the product. And, and Ranjit. Ranjit too. And, and, and Ranjit and Chai have got this and it's looking great. And I come on board and we have pre-seed investment. And we decided to take a, just for some diligence, let's take a deep dive into the market and into cybersecurity market. Web 2, Web 3, the whole thing. Like, let's take an agnostic look at it. And we started to uncover, we had some problems that we were trying to solve anyway with the DAO. And we started to uncover other problems, bigger problems, headline um, issues that we saw with the industry. And we had to start to ask ourselves, are we solving these bigger problems or are we contributing to them? I suppose the big three were, you know, as follows. First of all, this is, security is a booming industry. Yeah. Cybersecurity is a booming industry, and that should be no surprise. You know, the systems that we're creating are more and more complex with the explosion of blockchains, Web three, and everything out beyond the other side. But it's also overwhelmed. So if you look at, so Microsoft have said that they need to make a quarter of a million cybersecurity hires by 2025. Yeah, that's a lot of people. And even if you successfully make those hires, this is going to be junior people. Like you can't make a quarter of a million senior, well-seasoned hires. So, you, so you're going to flood the system with a quarter of a million junior hires. 
And I don't know what that looks like, but we all know that you, you reach critical mass on certain teams and it becomes inefficient. So if you've got that many, you know, even if you manage to make that many hires and God knows how big your HR teams need to get that done. You know, it, it just, that that's a thing. That's Scaling security teams is, is an impossible task. Right, it's unscalable. And then we looked at, and this is if the industry carries on. This was this was the strategy based on an industry if it carries on in the direction it's carrying. And then we're pulling up other data, and we, you know, we were coming across alarming things like India expects to have one and a half million cybersecurity vacancies by the end of 2025, start of 26. And this isn't a regional problem. Like India supports the world when it comes to IT support. Everyone knows that, so it, it can't be it can't be seen as a an employment issue on the subcontinent. Yeah. This is this is a this is this is a global tech infrastructure issue. That was the first thing. How is it that we're working so inefficiently with the talent that we already have that that we're finding ourselves needing this many people? The next thing we discovered was actually this industry is highly fragmented, and this kind of feeds into the first point: How are we being so inefficient with the talent that we already have? And it was that the industry is highly fragmented. So I'm not talking about software scanners and everything like that at the moment. Although we can come back to that because you know. They do an important, they perform an important role, but they're kind of dealing with problems of today because that's how they're built. They're not necessarily dealing with the, the challenges of tomorrow. And really, we're talking about the industry of third-party platforms, audits, pen testers, bug bounties, and there's 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 dozens of them. Must be close to seventy of them. They're all they're all siloed. So on the demand side, on, on a software side, say you know a software organization, security team goes to a platform. You're only really going to get to work with the talent that is subscribed to that platform. Yep. And even then, you're kind of working blindly with them. You're not face-to-face with them. On the supply side, so the hacker side or the cybersecurity side, if you, you each of these guys have specialities. They're looking for a program or a software, a software security program that meets their speciality. They have to go True. platform to platform, silo to silo to try and find these. So you're talking about talent that can't find each other. And added to which, you know, these platforms. They don't have huge interest in changing this up because the value extraction from the hackers, they're doing quite well out of it. You know, yeah. keep the hackers where they are, take your commission. You know, this is a profitable business. So and and the third thing was, and probably the most ironic, was like actually this is quite insecure. There are all of these vulnerability disclosures happening on third-party platforms. And these triage teams within the third-party platforms get to decide what the software companies get to hear about and don't hear about. Yeah. So the flow of information is questionable, but also there, there's there's something like 700,000 reports sat on third-party platforms of how to break into software. And, you know, some of them have been taken seriously and some of them have been acted on, some of them aren't. But CISOs up and down the land were telling us, we want ownership of this data. We want ownership of these reports and these conversations. Um, we can talk about how it is that they don't historically in, in a moment. So how is a DAO fixing any of this? Right. Well, we're going to generate a platform. We're going to put another platform out there, make it just that bit more fragmented, make it so that only Web3 protocols and, and companies can come to us and everything else is bottled up and siloed. So we took a hard view of this. It's like, okay, how do we solve the inefficiency of talent? How do we solve the insecurity? And how do we give hackers a better deal? Yeah. And we realized the DAO was something that we were doing. It was tech for tech's sake. You know, it hadn't been done before, so we wanted to do it. But if it doesn't solve a real world problem, what are we what are we doing it for? Yeah. So I have a deep I have a, go back far enough, I have a marketing and advertising background. 
and we used to call it digital for digital sake, you'd always come across something digital that someone was doing as part of a marketing campaign. But it's like, well, why? Because yeah. you're not actually <laughs> helping anything or solving a problem. You're just coming up with, hey, no one's done this digital thing before. It's like, well, okay, but it, how are you helping your client? How are you? How's it getting anywhere? Yeah. We talked to we talked to our seed investors. We sat down amongst us, and we were like, "If we're going to put our money where our mouth is, or put our investors' money where our mouth is, we've got to we've got to come up with something that solves these problems." So that was the first realization. And I think anybody who's been through what I've been through, or anyone that's taking a look at it, you know, the first thing is take a deep dive into the market and and be honest with yourself. Is it solving the problems? So that was when we knew we needed to redesign um, what we we're up to, and we we moved from WeFuzz which is a brand ID that was kind of limited in scope. And we, we came up with the Yokai Network. I, I want to pause for a second because mm. almost every business, every business at, 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 at a point, whether they've already launched or they're at their very early stages, have to rapidly be organic and pivot and, mm. and constantly be changing until they find their perfect product market fit, service market fit. Mm. One of the biggest common like misconceptions is that you're you're going to go to your investors when only there is good news and a lot of entrepreneurs are mm -hmm. thinking it's like why would i go to my investors when i'm struggling and i don't know what to do and they're going to think that like why is that a mistake that is a mistake because if you're lucky enough to have a good team of investors they've generally got a lot of experience and if you're lucky enough to have ones like we had which acted almost as an extension of our team then you're you're neglecting, uh, you, you know, you've got more brains in the room than you think you have and go to them because they have the experience. In also, you know, in a case of relationship management, you don't want to wait until you've got a serious problem. Like bring it in when it's a consideration, not when it's a, you know, not when it's I wish a, my 22-year-old me was listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was actually, they were the first ones to say it. We took it to them and they went, they said, pivot while you're small. You're oh, nimble. Interesting. Now's the time to do it. And we laid it out. They said it makes complete sense. And that was kind of, that was the thumbs up that we needed. All those subsequent CISOs and people that we spoke to were like, absolutely, you know. Sure. And by the way, what you're talking about, what you're now intending to build sounds really exciting and keep us posted. So the whole conversation was worth having and having more out in the open than some people might think is wise. To give a little bit of background, you are uh, the co-founder mm. and CEO of a still our company called Protocol that develops IP entertainment and sells it to worldwide audiences. And you founded also a company called Opsex Corps previously, and you developed enterprise and, and software for, for different companies that need to have gray hat testing or vulnerability and, and different types of software tools. But like you were kind of alluding to it, why don't automated software tools, why aren't they enough? Like why do we need especially in the world of AI, why do we mm. need global people? Why can't automated tools, especially with AI, be enough? Why do we need actual humans? Well, let's start with the AI. I mean, the AI needs to be trained on data sets, but it, needs, it doesn't learn through each epoch if you don't have the human correction. The human correction is where it realizes where an anomaly is not an anomaly. It only picks up the correct trends when it sees where the human correction came in. And, and of course, once you get it to a certain stage where it's black box, yes, okay, then it's more autonomous. I think that when it comes to the more common or garden software approaches like, like scanners, look, scanners are great and they pick up on threats by reading anomalies. But they're only as good as the day that they are completed and shipped. Or maybe as yeah. good as the day that they were designed and updated. 
if you want to get into things like zero days, zero day exploits are being designed and being discovered and then vulnerabilities being designed and built for them every day. And they work on the supposition that, um, well, they, they work with a clear advantage over the scanner. The scanner was built back then and the scanners can be updated, but sure. they're fighting today's battles, not tomorrow's battles. At least that's the presumed wisdom in the hacking. Community. Things are constantly changing and, and updating. Right, yeah. So I'm not saying they're obsolete and I'm not saying that you shouldn't use them. There's settings where scanners are perfectly good. But I think in a fast-moving world, you, you need a combination of both of them. You've got to ask yourself whether people like certification companies, insurance companies are going to take the, the, the scanner, yeah. scanning results as accreditation versus um, you know something that's been approved by a team of security professionals. So now you're launching Yokai. And the yeah. idea of Yokai, and you're going to explain it, is that people won't know that they're actually utilizing blockchain technology here. You're building a product and service for everyone, different types of products and services actually, but you're like harnessing the technology on the background, which is kind of like what we've wanted people to do for forever. You know, it's like not build crypto for crypto. So tell us about that. Tell us like where the company is now. Right. So we're harnessing various distributed and, and distributed and federation technologies to give us a network. So it's an open silo approach. We talked about closed silos. So take something like Matrix. You know, you like instant messengers. So you've got Signal, Telegram, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, Slack, all of these instant messenger programs. And if you don't know where to reach anybody, you kind of you've got to remember which platform they're on, in theory, and 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 go to that app. Yeah. Now Matrix, Matrix came along and solved this so that if you open the Matrix app on your phone through federated technology, it, it just puts it to the correct place. You don't have to go searching. It's anything. like Friends. There's another app like that called Friends. F-R-A-N-Z that I use too. F-R-A-N-Z. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, again, you've got a closed silo industry, fragmented. No one's communicating with each other. And the Yokai network allows us to work across all of these silos. It's an open silo network, and that's it, that, that's making it sound like an aggregator. It's not. It's a platform just like any of the other ones, but it works across all of them through federated technology. So, what you get is a software company can download our software, and any any hacker, any pen tester, any auditor can download the software and open a node on our network. And it allows a couple of things to happen. It allows the software companies. So let's take Microsoft as the obvious, an, an obvious example. It allows, although it's Web two, Web three agnostic, it can be Solana as well. Microsoft can open a node on our network and set up an isolated network, and that means that any other security personnel that have a, a node open on the network can also be invited to join that isolated network. It means they have their own. I don't want to call it a shop window, but they have their own presence on a network for the first time instead of being a faceless entity um, stuck behind a silo. The network that the, the Microsoft set up, they get to host on their own servers. So a couple of things are happening now. Rather than putting a bounty out on a platform and having uh, all the disclosures happen on third-party platform and then a faceless triage team uh, let you know what's being discovered or them deciding what's appropriate for you to know and not know, yeah. it's happening all on their server. So they have complete custody of their data. And it allows people to, you know, choose and build their networks. A lot of security teams know who they want to work with. A lot of security teams know what they want to do. And so on the demand side, you have a security team that can open a node on the network and build their own isolated network. On the supply side, you have hackers that now have 
one dashboard through which they can start to navigate a fairly unnavigable industry. Now, this comes to the next to the next exciting element of this, which is so. Let's say you've got Google and Google and Microsoft have both got their own isolated networks. They can throw a federation switch on their network, which suddenly makes the network visible to everybody else on the network. So now you can start to cast the net much more widely among hackers that have a node open on the network. That's the first thing. So it's no longer closed silo. Everybody has presence and everybody can see each other's program and be invited in if they need to. But the next exciting part is, and you know, we're launching this in a couple of weeks at NALCON, by the way, the, 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 the um, security conference in India. In January, we'll be federation capable. We're going to be able to federate. And this means that... Security personnel can use the Yokai dashboards to bridge onto their other profiles on different platforms, meaning they can use the API keys that are made available to them by virtue of having that profile and that they can start to work across silos on the single Yokai dashboard. No more platform hopping, no more dashboard hopping. For the first time on the demand side, software organizations can cast the net broadly using talent across silos. Um, And on the supply side, the security personnel they have a dashboard that makes the industry much more navigable. It's almost like the way that blockchains are going too. You know, we had a world where we just had Bitcoin and then everything grew. We have like hundreds of these different chains that some wallets work with some and some wallets work with others and you need gas and you need all these things. And in the future, you're never going to like make everyone use one because they all offer different intricacies and people learn on different platforms one time in their life and they become perfect at it and they're not going to go relearn another one. Same thing with like, you know, in the film industry, a script supervisor, he's in charge of like, or she's in charge of the logic of the film as it's happening in real time, making sure the story Mm -hmm. makes sense. There's a very specific software they use and there's about a dozen different ones. And people are very defensive of the software because they learn and they have their whole career. These people make a lot of money, sometimes Mm. six figures or more yearly just doing this job. So it's the same thing here. These are people that are, because a lot of people are like, why? what's the point? Why why not just have one place? Well, that's not the way the world works. And we've seen like platforms that have like created seamless connections between multiple different types of like geographical locales that bring them all together that Mm -hmm. uh, are very successful. I find it very unique that you're also launching the company and focusing in India, where I know that your two two of the founders are from. But like you mm-hmm. said, India is a, one of it's probably the fastest growing democracy in the world, the fastest growing economy in the world. You have like almost almost every top you know 500 Inc. 500 company in the U.S. has a CEO that originates from from the India or that region. So it's it's probably like again being ahead of the the curve, ahead of the tide, ahead of the wave. Yeah, I, I think so. And they've got the talent as well. It's a talent hotbed for this kind of stuff. So did we choose India purposefully? I think we probably could have done. But Nullcon, the conference, chose India first, and we wanted to launch with Nullcon. And they're one of the biggest conferences. It made complete sense. Of course, it helps that two founders are yeah. two founders are Indian also. I mean, obviously, they're going to feel comfortable there. But look, this is the place where we've just said there's going to be this huge going to be uh, like one and a half million vacancies in cybersecurity in, 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 in two years' time. Although that is a figure based on a trajectory that we continue on the same line. And the point about yokai is we don't continue on the same line. We're going to head this off so that either the need for those vacancies go away or that um, yeah. they're easily filled going through Noka. We're, we're, we're working more efficiently with the talent we have rather than hiring millions of juniors. What roles are there for other people in cybersecurity 
because it's like a perfect hybrid if you come from IT and tech or finance and you know crypto and have worked in crypto for some time, it's like a perfect place for you to, to land potentially. What other types of roles are there other than engineers and developers? Pen testers in Web 2, auditors in Web 3. A lot of, if you take our um, account executives, our founder, account executive, you know, it's not just the sharp ends. There's roles for everybody and something I've seen recently. So I'm like you, I've got a you know film production background. I've got a marketing background. If you go to Cannes or Cannes Lions at the moment, it's all meta and Google yeah. and Intel and all these tech stands out there because everybody's moving out of certain industries and in, in, into tech industries. It's so, funny. I was, yeah, I was so, at Cannes this last year and it was like all sponsored by TikTok. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's not... Like, Confused a little bit. Yeah, it's like yeah. all tech like, companies was... everywhere and not. Yeah, yeah. All tech companies. I, I'd, I'd almost flip it. I'd see like what roles, it's not what roles are available. It's like what roles aren't available True now story. in tech. A lot of the traditional recruitment agencies that used to work in marketing are now, they've opened their tech divisions or they've been bought up by tech recruitment companies. So I'd say there's room for almost every skill set in there at the moment. The growth is that extensive. Growth is a huge. Where did you guys get the name Yokai? This comes from our chief creative officer, John Philippe, and he he just took a deep dive into everything. I mean, this is what he does, is he's keep his thumb on the pulse of culture. And, you know, we could have come up with, a, there was all kinds of things. A lot of these companies, you know, have an implication of what they're trying to do, and then a slight bastardization of the name to make it sound a little bit different. So, you know, there's a clear indication of the role, like we fuzz. Fuzzing is a Fuzzing is a hacking technique, yeah. and, and we buzz began there. Yokai speaks to the ability of this network to be completely fluid and to grow organically and to move where the problems and the solutions lie. It's a Japanese word that means uh, spirit or ghost. Oh, very um, cool. And there's, there's, there's several of them. We thought it was quite fitting. Sounded different. Sticks out amongst the noise. Um, we're quite fond of it. Do you ever think about developing some content for yokai where it's like maybe like some sort of animated series or or some sort of like i don't know to like in order to like teach people or get new customers or things like that i know some companies are thinking of doing it i mean shelly i i follow your posts and i i see what you'd put on twitter and stuff and you and i both agree i think that content creation monetization it, it's it's all going to end up living in the same place um i also come from a world of branded content where you know Gone are the days where a global media buy is going to get you the audience you need. If you can come up with a story worth telling, you can put it out there for free. And that spreads the message a lot, a lot better. So yes, I would love to. I would, I would love to put that together. It's a nice idea. So you so you have the the company where it is today. And I know there are some mm. like secret products and services, especially in the industry that you're in, you have to protect the good ideas that you guys come up with. Mm. But what can you tell us? Like what's in the future? What type of things are, well, are you okay looking to launch? Of course we're working with AI. Of course we're working with novel applications to make working with the talent we have more efficient. Let me tell you a little bit about chronometry. Chronometry is something that comes as standard on the network. A lot of hackers, when they discover something, and this goes back to sort of where the industry is at the moment, hackers discover something and they will report it to a platform or to a software company. And sometimes, and I've been sat next to them when this happens and they're like, damn it, I just lost all this money. <sighs> they'll, uh, they'll report it thinking they're going to get their bounty and they're told, no, it's already been seen and the hole has already been closed, And but thanks very much. 
And oh, a lot yeah. of hackers have taken to posting that what they find on Twitter as a, like almost a way to timestamp it. Look, I found it first kind of thing. So chronometry allows you to timestamp your discovery uh, and post it on the network so that there can be no argument about who found it first, when they found it. And, and I think this will be warming, this will be heartening to the white hat community to know that we're kind of looking out for them like this. Oh, man. And, and helping with arbitration. If you go far enough back, so there's something about the network that we haven't mentioned, which I like. And I, I, I like it because it stops it from being a competitor to platforms and really moves it into the realm of being more of a standard in cybersecurity. And so go far enough back. These security programs, they used to take place in-house, all of them. Yeah. And they used to take place before the product was launched. I always use the Microsoft Internet Explorer one because it's the, it's the most ubiquitous one. But they would perform you know, a modern day bug bounty on their products before it got released and it would be done in-house. Yeah. And a couple of things happened. First of all, no one showed up for it. Um, <laughs> no one showed up for it because hackers wanted the kudos of finding it. And there's no kudos if the product isn't out in the world. So the best talent weren't showing up because, you know, it's it's a fairly low fee and I don't get any kudos because no, one no one's ever going to find out it's about it. It's not worth it, yeah. Yeah. The other thing that happened was that the Microsoft couldn't deal with the spam, the triage. There was they got so much traffic. It was like, okay, we 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 can't sift through this. We have to push it out to a third-party platform. Now, if you set up your own isolated network that's happening on your servers and you've got custody of all the data, and all the hackers and all the pen testers have opened up nodes on the same network, the question that of course arises. What's happening with the spam? You know, it's happening. Aren't we returning to that same problem? And we're not. Here's the beautiful thing. If you know a triage company that you trust and work with all the time, ask them to open a node on our network. That's your triage support. We're not preventing any of that. So it gets to a point where if you favor the triage of a competitor platform to ours, invite them to open a node and in they come. That's when we go move from being a competitor to providing a standard by which everybody can work more efficiently. Um, everybody gets to use the network, not only as a force multiplier, but as a, a, a more secure way and a more efficient way to secure these products. So walk me through this. Yeah. So you got triage, as I understand. It's the first time I've ever heard someone use triage outside of like a medical setting. Before. Right. <laughs> Kudos to you. Yeah, Great. Yeah. I love when this That'd happens. Good. So triage, is, from my understanding, is like, when you first show up to a hospital, they kind of like assess where you need to go and what the problem mm -hmm. is and urgency okay, and yeah. all this other yeah. stuff. How is how are you using that okay, here? So a triage team is going to... White hats, hackers, pen testers, they're going to be sending in their reports. This is what I've discovered or this is what I think I've discovered. And a triage team are going to pick it up and they're going to, at a first glance, is this right, yes or no? And you know the experienced ones will be able to tell quite quickly Yes or no. If it looks right, can I recreate it? Can I build it again? Can I follow these instructions and discover what they think they've discovered? And if they can, then they'll then it passes the test. Okay, so that's your spam filter. Is what is being reported by the hacker real? That's the shortest answer. And if it is, then it gets pushed out as a viable report. That's the most important thing because that's you said spam comes. Right. That's okay, yeah, very yeah. interesting. And um, a ton of people will be reporting in. The network helps you limit that. But also, you know, it's like producing. It's like, I like this writer yeah. and this, I want this DP and I want this VFX artist. And like, okay, so you want which hackers? You want which triage support? You, you craft your network. On the limited films that I've worked right. on, the five or six, my role is now, be, I've like never had a specific role that I was trained 
the term producer is very broad. Yeah, true, true. But I've like found myself as the like logistical problem solver. Yeah. Slash triage person. Triage, so, yeah. Maybe where in like yeah. similar. It's similar. In fact, I think I've done more firefighting in film production than I have as a producer <laughs> than actually producing. So maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a movie triager. <laughs> um, yeah, you probably are. <laughs> yeah. It's cool because you know we jump from like certain industries to the to, to the next. You go from from the the content creation world, and now you're the CEO of like a completely different business, yeah. but in a whole network actually. But what's interesting here that we've talked about for the last 35, 40 minutes is that it's actually exactly the same. You're you're taking your experiences, the problems that you've seen in different mm-hmm. stuff, and you're like applying it. So for anyone listening, and myself included, I think every five or six years. We fall into these like ruts, whether we're burnout or we don't, where a side gig is not making as much money mm. anymore as it once was, mm. whether it's personal training or even podcasting or your job is not as great. But you don't have to like let go of everything. You can continue to like fluid, you know, in a yokai way through fluidity, actually take those same skills and everything and, and, and grow your next, your next I company. I completely agree. And I've, uh, this is, this is a realization I came to. I mean, yes, the tech can be daunting, but, you know, dive into it. But, experience and business acumen up to this point, it applies everywhere and it's crucial. And as long as you surrounded yourself with the right people, you know, if it, if, if, it, if it gets really, really tacky, you know, I've got Chai and Ranjit, you know, they're the techs on this. And as long as you construct the right team around you, I think that there is application from every industry and in, into every industry. And I think that you'd be surprised what brilliance can come from people that walk into a situation from other industries, the common sense that they can oh. walk in with, you're like, yeah, damn it, you're right. That's that's the common oh. sense approach. It's, I love when yeah. that happens. I love when like there's like a problem and some random yeah, person exactly. who has no involvement like comes up with the most like yeah. perfect solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a sign of brilliance right there. I love yeah. that. Yeah, it, it is. And, and then we all have to remember not to be intimidated by the guy that came in that apparently knows nothing and just solved it. Okay, so that's that's a great example right there that you said is that, and I don't know how other people did it, but I'm lucky that I had that benefit of going to prison for a year yeah. is that I learned how to like not, like I learned how to be okay with other people having really good ideas and then you kind of like bringing people up and then you you can bring yourself up by bringing other people up too. Mm. But most 99.9% of people don't know how to deal with what you just said. Someone walks into the room with a good idea in a business, personal, even relationship setting. How do you deal with that? And that's a struggle for a lot of people. Where do you get that humility from? I mean, I, I, and I've been shot down many times in that situation. But yours, that's 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 a much rarer situation that you're describing. What what did you come out of that situation with that you were able to apply? Because that's that feels like a rarer skill set that other people don't have. Oh man, I mean, one of the best skill sets is like on the internet, you have people trolling you all right. the time and they come at you and they they say things or create narratives just to like incite emotion out of you. In, in prison, that's happening 24 hours okay. a day. Yeah. Like people create multiple week-long practical jokes and they're not even jokes. They People like do things to put other people into like positions that if you don't get out of them the right way, you're going to get sent to solitary confinement your ass kicked or like kicked out of this prison to a higher level institution or worse. 
So you're like, prison is a constant video game where you're playing the boss and you're like at the lowest skill level. And the best thing to do is like to stay out of the way, stay off the radar and learn and listen, but don't let people know that you're learning and listening. The best way to go get through prison is to be dumb. It's just act stupid. So I didn't talk about Bitcoin and crypto in there. I didn't talk about financial stuff. I was just the dumb kid. I drove a snowplow. Okay. Just go slow, pay attention, act Yeah, dumb. you just keep it slow and stay. It's a good lesson for life too. Sometimes the best thing to do is just do nothing at all. That's, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah, that, that's a great lesson. Did people ask you about it inside though? Were people asking you for advice on like you know, financial yeah, advice? Yeah, it's, it's different because I was, I was talking to Martin Scarelli who got out a couple of months after I got out. He was the guy who did the whole like uh, pharmaceutical, raised the price on the pharmaceutical oh, yeah, yeah. stuff oh, yeah, remember, yeah. a couple of years ago. So he, uh, but that's not actually why he went to jail. He went to jail for some like insider trading or something like that. Yeah, they got but um, he was telling me like when he was in, people were like trading altcoins in the bathroom on MetaMask and everyone knew of crypto. Yeah. I'm lucky that when I went in in 2015, it was like before that wave. True. So no one really knew what crypto was in Bitcoin when I was in prison. So I was really lucky. If I had gone in a couple of years later, 2019, 2020, it would have been a lot harder for me because I'd be like Sam Bankman-Fried yeah. right now. I'd be very well known and you don't want that. I feel bad. I don't feel bad for him, but I feel bad for anyone who is in an unfortunate situation in prison and they're like famous because especially, if you know, if they've had no victims and stuff like that, I just, it's hard, it's yeah. tough. It's tough to get yeah, through yeah. it. SBF won't get, like, I'm lucky that I came out at least a little bit similar to how I was before I mm. went in, but it fundamentally changes. Like, you're like reborn as a completely different person. It's a shame. But anyways, that's... Interesting. You have to be fluid. Yeah. You have to be a yokai in this world. Business, personal, relationships, friends, everything. You can be married for 30 years. You got to be a yokai. You got to be constantly willing to be able to change. Right. And it's it's the soul, the, lesson the soul and the body. Like your body's going to go through it, but your soul sometimes needs to go through it and just take it as a process. Kind of thing. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate you coming on the show. Today. It's really nice to be here. Thanks very much for having me, Charlie. This was yeah. awesome. This is phenomenal. Enjoyed it. Amazing show. We have a very special guest joining us today, someone who's been at the forefront of, of online communities since the early days of the internet. Please welcome my guest, Anjali Young. Anjali, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. It's a pleasure to talk to you and talk about all things Web3. You're the co-founder of Collab.Land. Your journey is as diverse as it is inspiring. From your early days as a member and leader in, in online communities back in 1993, you've gone from roles as like lawyer, professor, tech startup employee. You've been a true pioneer in the crypto space. You have a huge passion for NFTs, art, Web3 ethos. You know, it's shaped your vision. It seems like you guys have been like understanding the why Bitcoin and crypto are important too, at following kind of your company. The interesting is that the, you know, your company is not just a community or a tool, it's a movement. You guys are the creators, one of the, the pioneers of what we now know is like token gating a concept that has allowed over 50,000 online communities to curate membership based on specific tokens. You know, it was really cool. I was checking out your website and going through everything that you guys do. And it's like, I need to do this for my community. But you allow communities on 24 different layer ones or layer twos. You know, everyone calls them ZKEVM, the new lingo now, using fungible tokens and NFTs. But it allows people to like create different administrative roles and be part of this like, whole community. And you manage big names like Adidas, McLaren, World of Women, and many more. 
You've also earned recognition from Salesforce on their Web3 advisory board. So you totally understand everything that's been going on. So all the, all the listeners, we're going to dive into this journey. Sit back, relax, and join us for this great conversation. There's so many different angles to go here and places to start. When doing the research for this show, when we were creating the, the, the thought process, what really struck close to me is that I got into Bitcoin for the community. Literally, I tell people it wasn't, it was, it was Bitcoin, the financial instrument, and it was the whole thing. It was really cool. And I explained to people what Bitcoin is and why I got really excited about it. But what really was for me was at the time, the community was forums and message boards, and it was just filled with like misfits and everything because the rest of the world still wasn't on these online communities yet. Like right now, everyone is a member of the social world, the social internet world. But back then, people weren't, right? Absolutely. And that's really been true. That's my journey as well. Like when I first started with BBSs and like dialing into community, my modem back in 93, it was like, who are these people? There are people that want to connect in this digital form from all over the place, all different interests. But what I know is they're interested in technology. And that's what brought us together. So it was being able to be kind of wacky, be different. First time you really got to, um, have freedom from your yeah. flesh suit is what I call it. But now it's like you're you're not just living in these online communities. You're also creating them and working within them at the same time. Well, that's been a whole other joy on its own. I mean, being a part of online communities and watching the transition over the decades. Like this has been the opportunity to be at the ground floor of a brand new type of online community. And really now our worlds are online and IRL together. Like there's very different, there's not much difference in what we do online versus what we're doing in real life. Oftentimes our relationships start online and then move to IRL or our relationships are IRL. And then they also are intertwined online as well. So it's like, we live in both places simultaneously now. And so having the ability to be a part of this new type of community that includes ownership, right? That includes some actual financial element to it. It's kind of like the last um, last step. Like, you know, we have this online world, this, this nation that we're kind of creating online, and now it has this money element to it. Like relationship mapping. Absolutely. And it has real world connection. It's like now you can have a person on one side of the world, right? Be a part of a community and somebody else like in another part of the world. And they don't even know each other in any other way. They don't have any other relationship with each other, but they both have this shared financial asset. And that shared financial asset, it's just like what you said. Like, why did you get involved with Bitcoin? It was for the community. It wasn't for the money, but the money aspect of it drew people together into that community. And so once you get there, what relationship grows and what we saw from Collabland is like, trust can come as the result of a transaction. It's no longer the way it was previously, which is you needed to know somebody. I needed to know Charlie. Charlie and I needed to be have some sort of relationship already. And then we would maybe move into a transactional relationship together. Now, for the first time, people are kind of entering into a transactional relationship from the beginning. And then from that transactional relationship, they're getting to build a relationship. It's been really quite revolutionary in many, many ways. You know, people that were not able to be in the same social circles at all before, there would have been no opportunity for them to interconnect. Good point. Uh, now are. 
Good point. It's just been um, a really beautiful thing. And then, you know, on the housekeeping side of it, like being a part of online communities, you know, you have to deal with trolls. I don't know if you've ever been a modern admin of, yeah, troll management. That was one of my first jobs in the online communities as a kid was I would be on these forums uh, like Cyber Extreme and, and, and such. And I would like just volunteers to be moderator of, of just a specific like sub forum to start, but eventually leading my way to become like administrator of some of these sites. Yeah, that, I mean, that's right. And so, you know, like modding a huge group is extremely difficult. And you don't know who's actually interested and invested and who is not really, who's there just to cause trouble. And now with token gating, that was one of the first unlocks for me that I saw practically, which is like, you know, who's a holder, you know, now who's actually got skin in the game with your community. And if somebody is not verifying, does not, is not proving that they have ownership or they're in it, then it's like, you can now decide how much importance you're going to give them. It's not going to be the same situation where you have to manage all of this influx of negativity, comments, input from people that may not be actually invested. What you just described is like the the true vision of, of how Satoshi kind of like created the original Bitcoin community because we all had that common bond in the in the Bitcoin forums and chat rooms that we all knew that we all were holders of Bitcoin. And that the people that would come in and troll us, like there was Buttcoin and there was these different, there was this big hacking group that at the time, early on in the Bitcoin days, didn't like Bitcoin. They were called something awful. I think they were called big hacking group. And they just attacked Bitcoin for the first. And so all the first early years of Bitcoin were just like us as an online community defending ourselves. And then we had Cosby coin, which was this huge hack on the Bitcoin talk forum in the early days that where we were all hacked. And there were multiple times over and over again where communities would come in and like try to take over our community. But I had a lot of experience in that because I had built some of these other communities before online communities. And so we could like the beauty of this community at the time and why the Bitcoin community grew to like crypto where it is today was that that Bitcoin community we all knew that we were holders of Bitcoin. There was like a financial instrument, like it was a transactional relationship. That's right. And it really, where we put our money is where we are putting our attention. And so at the end of the day, you know, everyone that's holding Bitcoin is giving attention to the same thing that you're giving attention to. And so it's that combined attention that keeps you together and is a motivator to work together, innovate together, collaborate together. Like it's such a springboard for so much more. So for us, that was really the first unlock, you know, Collabland started as a DAO tool. And why did we need it as a DAO tool? Well, because of COVID. Uh, COVID came and now people that were meeting together in the DAO space at actual conferences uh, couldn't meet together in real life, you know, meet spaces, what they call. And so for us, we're like, all right, let's come up with something where we can get our community together. And how do you do that? Well, see if they have the online asset. Now we have the blockchain. We're all able to read the blockchain to see who has what and who owns what. Like everyone can see it. We can all know. Uh, let's use that as a way to determine who gets to be in the community. Um, and that was the initial spark for where Collabland came from. And then, you know, with COVID happening and all types of groups being closed down, all types of um, real life places being closed down, people were searching for other ways to connect. And it was really a right time, right place kind of situation where our little DAO tool um, became 
what it is today, which has sparked an entire cottage industry, is considered a primitive uh, for crypto now, token gating. Like you buy a token and what do you get with it? Yeah. Right. Like now I have it. What what now? It's not, it's not just holding the token. It's what's the access? What's the group? Who are the other people? I need to know what's what's the community here. Like that concept of really what's the community and how do I join that community and how do I use my um, blockchain asset as a membership into a community, you know, came from really came from COVID and came from Calabla and being there at that time. Do you want blockchains to reach out to you now when they're building themselves to have to make sure that they that they have what it takes per se? Does that make sense? We have community or blockchains coming to us that don't have community culture already happening on their blockchains. And so they're like, how do we build a community culture? Well, without token gating, without a token gating service, you're not going to do that. But so we do have conversations with them about how to get started. You know, we had actually just onboarded our 25th blockchain, which was near blockchain recently. The blockchains come to us because they see how important community is and they want to know how to get there. How do we attract attract people uh, to build on our chain and to build communities on our chain? And that's been really super gratifying. And and again, like what you said, which is communities always been the onboarding, right? Community was on for you, but community as a way to onboard it's really this last cycle where people got to see the power of it, right? With like Board Ape or Bankless or whatever, any of these big communities. Like you see community and how community can be such a huge force in moving your whatever you're trying to do forward. So now blockchains see it more. You know, the ones in the beginning that did were more innovative and thinking, um, looking at NFTs really closely initially as membership yeah. tokens. But not all of them. But still, we have um, blockchains approaching us and wanting to um, have some sort of like community management tools for their chain. Funny, because a lot of people that we talk to that get it, get it. But a lot of people that get it, that don't get it, they understand that even if they don't understand like what's happening under the hood, they knew that their kids were playing just video games on PlayStation earlier. And now they know that their kids are participating in these communities where they're holding these tokens and these parents know, they understand baseball cards. They understand that these things that can, you know, create value together. And, and I think that is like such a watershed moment in how the next generation is kind of like growing up now. But at the same time, I have to take the other side. I'm already someone who is like, I feel like sometimes I'm very, I look at relationships in a very transactional way and I don't think it's the right way to live life. You guys have homeschooled your kids and so you so so you like have you have a lot of influence and you understand the perspective of like community building at such like a young age, especially for kids in the digital age. How do we build communities but not raise kids to be transactional? Because it's like that's not the right way to live. Well, you know, it's interesting because my son, I have a 15-year-old. And he plays Minecraft and he plays Roblox and he plays a lot of these sandbox games. And I ask him, like, how do you, what does that day in the life look like? He's like, well, first I go to Discord and I talk about what I want to build that day. And I see if anybody else is interested in building something with me that day. And then we plan out what we're going to do. And we talk about, you know, who's going to be responsible for what. And then we join my private server and we build it together. That's one way. Other times he says when he has like deep work time, he'll go to his own secret places and build things on his own and test things out and try things out. So it's like 
there really isn't a difference. Like at some point, they're going to incorporate money into that, right? Working together, because that's what we're all doing. You and I are talking over Zoom. Our whole team is distributed. We're all working independently. Like, I don't know if our children are going to have this separation. They're going to see their social life and friend life and transaction life, um, transactional life where they're working together. Like, they're going to see a much more of a merge of that. You're going to work with people you like. You're going to work with people that work well with you. You're going to be blending this play and work together. They're at a whole other level. I will tell you that, Charlie. It's like, like so above comprehension sometimes. It's really, it's crazy. There's an episode, you know the show Black Mirror? Yeah, of course, yes. There's an episode in one of the first or second season where they go to an island and it's like an island without cell phones or any like any technology. And I remember watching that. It's like, why would someone want to live there? And now I'm like, I would have a second home there if I could mm-hmm. on an island that just didn't allow any technology, computers or phones or anything. It's not just about like going there for a week. It's full-time residents who make their lives around non-technology. That's, it doesn't exist anymore. No, I mean, there are places where it does. My daughter, you know, I homeschooled her until eighth grade, but she went to a Waldorf high school. She actually just graduated uh, last month and they don't have any technology. They use the total old ways, um, going out and um, all non-technology. So there are communities that do that, but it's definitely not the norm. And I don't know how well that will serve them moving forward because so much of the way we're all living and working and communicating together and learning about what's important to each other is happening online. So... There's definitely, it's good to have a foundation of the classics. And, you know, they, they would go up into the mountains for two weeks and just focus on Hamlet. Like they were oh, interesting. You know, the total, totally opposite of what uh, is happening in traditional schools now. It's, it's a traditional way of like, they'll go river rafting and uh, volunteer on uh, reservations. And so it's like all non-tech, but you're learning life lessons. Um, but I think there has to be some way to accept the fact that our world is a global world. Now we have a global culture at a time where we didn't have a global culture before. And the only way for us to participate in this global culture is to be online together. Like how else am I going to learn about what's necessarily popular in Nigeria or what people are concerned about in- True story, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you have to be online. And and that's been actually a really amazing, honestly. Like when I think about even our team, the Clubland team, like- our culture as a team, it's like so much of our culture is shared because it's an online culture. Like we're the same memes, right? Like we're following maybe the same people online. Probably, we're sharing, yeah. the same, sharing the same videos. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a culture that sits on top of all of the world's individual cultures. To participate in that, you do need to be online. That term online, is that going to change for us in the near future? The way we... Like I have a computer, you have a computer or a phone or whatever. And then there's this, is the, is the, you think this will change? Will, will we all be using some AR hardware in the future or like, and how will that affect things? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, my journey with online communities or digital communities started with text. And here I am 30 years later, we're still doing text. Like it's still, you know, in that way, Discord and Telegram are feel very familiar to me, like feel very much like this is not something new I have to learn, even though I'm 
going to be 50, right? Like I'm much older than the people that are around me um, and are in this space. But this is, this was my jam. This is how we communicated. We did text. Like we didn't even have images or videos or anything. We literally just had text and we would make little creatures out of our uh, computer keys. And so it's like, this isn't that different now. I mean, if you think about X slash Twitter, like we're still using text as a way to communicate moving forward. I don't know. Actually, I was thinking about this morning about AI and how maybe people who are accented in a way that doesn't provide them access, maybe they're going to be able to use AI where they speak into something and then they get some other accented voice coming on the other end and how that's going to be a huge unlock for people who maybe were born in certain areas and that are accented a a different way than what's maybe popular or thought of as prestigious, right? Like we, as humans, we give some affluence and education to some accents. We attribute that. That's so true. But only in some places. It's funny. I read this somewhere. It's like, I saw a map of like, in these countries, these are the top other accents that could get you basically like, uh, it's like things that you don't understand. Like uh, in in the UK, in the US, a UK accent, you're already like elevated to some level. But in the UK, you could just be a guy at the bar or something. Absolutely true. And so (laughs) in the same way, like ChatGPT allows people who are not native English speakers, right? Because still the the language of the internet is English, you know, for better or for worse. I don't know if that's going to change. I don't know. Interesting. Wow. Something to think about. So then how do you plan the future of of the company in your like roadmap? Oh boy. From which angle should we talk about? Um, From the community angle? Well, you have to know what people want before they kind of know what they want. Yeah. And that's kind of been the nice part about doing this and that none of this, none of the way the community or the company has been guided so far has been me guessing or our uh, founder team guessing. It's like being in deep relationship with our admins, with our community founders, and being able to just watch the data of what's popular, what are people using, what are people doing? Um, what wallets are they using? What chains are they using? What token types are they using? What mini apps? You know, we have a whole app marketplace. Like what apps are they installing? Oh, interesting. What type of apps are there? Yeah. So we have an app marketplace. So with Collabland, you can install Collabland the bot. And then once you install the Collabland the bot, then you have your opportunity to customize your Collabland experience. Uh, so we have like a complex roles. If you need complex roles for your community, if you want to have kudos, which are like verifiable credentials. So if I want to give you, Charlie, you did an amazing job on this um, podcast today. I want to send you a verifiable credential, which is a pretty much an off-chain NFT that you can mint at your leisure. It's not public to everybody until you make it public, but it's cryptographically shows that I, as an admin for a community, gave it to you as a member of a community. Uh, we have that. We have POAP integrations. I don't know if you're familiar with POAPs, but it's a proof of part, um, proof of uh, attendance. And so if you show up to my uh, town hall, if you, if you show yeah. up to my Twitter spaces, if you show up to my IRL event, then I'm going to give you a proof that you showed up to that. Uh, we have snapshot integration for voting. Yeah, I mean, oh lots God. of different. We have meme contests. It's uh, unbelievable. We have, a, we have a chain patrol, which is like a um, you know security app if you want to add additional security to your server. So we have all kinds of different apps that people can use to customize their communities. And actually that came from the fact that we have so many different types of communities. Like you cannot just say community and that means quote unquote community. And that's going to be one thing. Like we also need to recognize there's DeFi communities, which have totally different interests. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, DAOs have totally different interests focused around government, NFT communities, gaming communities. Oh, yeah. Where they want to get together and uh, get onto a guild together and, and take on some challenges or some quests together. Like every type of community that's using, that's a crypto community, even we're large enough now, which is really maybe the alpha, we're large enough now that we have so much diversity amongst the different types of people that are coming together that there really kind of is beginning to be something for everybody. I mean, McLaren, for example, you can join that community because you have a McLaren NFT, but everybody in that community is talking about racing. They're all all of common interest. They have a common interest in that. Yeah, they have a common interest that they're interested in racing, but they're not talking about the NFT. They're not talking about the floor price of the NFT or who's trading the NFT or the trading volume of the NFT or what's coming up for the NFT or how the NFT is going to interact with, you know, metaverse A or metaverse B. They're literally talking about what they probably would have wanted to talk about anywhere else, which is F1 and race. I love that. That's so cool. So it adds this extra layer, I will say, of now I have some skin in the game. Now I have some ownership. Now I have some influence, some opinion here. This is a brand I really like. And this is why we see so many brands coming into the space. I mean, we'll see more coming in in the bull market, of course. And and some are still waiting and and working on a strategy uh, now. But there are also plenty that are joining now. I think people are beginning to see that in this world where... So, you know, Web2, right? You, like, you're also a content Waiting creator. for that watershed moment. That's what everyone's waiting for, for that crazy watershed moment. I appreciate you taking the time and coming on the show today and teaching us what you have going on. Thank you so much. Gosh, I could have gone for even longer. I think this is a lot of fun. I hope um, our paths cross again. I wish they scheduled more time. Well, I'll, I'll cheers. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Charlie. Come check us out on social media, and I'll see you all next week. I'm Charlie Shrem. Keep questioning. Keep having fun. Find that edge. That's the key. Find that fucking edge.